Welcome back to Bible Time. We're going to be taking a detour from our Through the Bible study, and we're going to do a topical Bible Time today, and we're going to look at a topic as um, in the light of Scripture. We don't usually do this, but this is one that's been um, kind of coming up around here a lot, and it's one that we've studied a lot, one that's very, very important. We want to look at the topic of worship today, worship in the Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 8. This is a very, very important topic in the Bible. It's a very powerful topic in the Bible. And we want to specifically look at music in worship. And what is godly music? Is there such a thing as godly music? Is godly all um, neutral? Is it a neutral ground where we can just pick and choose whatever we feel like? Or does God have preferences in music? Are all instruments okay? Are some instruments not? I'm legitimately asking those questions, and we want to legitimately ask them all of the Bible. You say, well, who would even ask such a thing? Well, you sure haven't gotten around much if you haven't heard those questions asked. There's all kinds of different opinions. Um, You have your own opinions, and everybody else has their own opinions. As they say, everybody's entitled to their opinions. Well, humanly speaking, you're all entitled to your opinions, but divinely speaking, none of us are entitled to our opinions. God's Word is the final rule for life and everything involving life. God has something to say about everything. If God doesn't bring it up directly, he brings it up indirectly. You say, what about automobiles? You won't find Volvos in the Bible. Actually, yes, you will find Volvos and Lamborghinis and everything, all other types of cars and airplanes and everything else in the Bible. You say, where will you find those? You say, the Bible, well, the Bible says in the last days, it says that men will rush to and fro. Oh, that's not fair. You say, yes, it is fair. God told exactly as much about it as he wanted to get into, and God is not impressed with your Lamborghini. So God didn't bother telling you all about Lamborghini and Ferrari and their big argument and the how the tractor maker turned into a supercar maker and the history of the development of supercars, because God doesn't really care. God's chariots are flaming fire, and his horses fly through outer space, and God really isn't interested in your supercar. He's way ahead of you. And so he didn't bother mentioning it. He just said in the last days that men would rush to and fro, and he covered basically all modern transportation from space travel and air travel to car travel and train travel and underwater travel and everything else. And he covered it in one sentence and moved on. And we think we're a hyper-advanced culture because we have all these fast modes of travel, and God covered it in one part of one sentence in the book of Daniel. Uh, So God covers everything in the Bible. If he doesn't cover it directly, he covers it indirectly, and we need to go to the Bible for an understanding of godly worship and godly music. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that this teaching would honor you and glorify you and that you would strengthen your churches through it, Father, that you would strengthen my family, that you would strengthen our people, our friends, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, in these perilous times, in these last days, to discern between godly music and ungodly music. And Lord, that we would not have opinion-based theology, but rather that we would have Bible-based theology. And I ask this for myself and for all those that would listen to this, that you would help us to align ourselves with your word, with repentant hearts. That means that we would just simply agree with you. 
And if you condemn something that we love, that we would say, Lord, you loved us enough to die for us, and so we'll give it up because we love you. And if it offends you, it offends me. Lord, such a heart is all that you want from us, and it's what we're asking you to give us and those that would listen to this. In Jesus' name, amen. So here today, worship is the topic, and particularly music and worship. But in order to study music and worship, you need to study worship. Because if you don't understand worship, you don't even have a basis or a ground work to discuss music in worship because the music is a sideshow. The worship is the main act, so to speak. Obviously, if your music's a show and an act, you got a problem anyway. If you're, it's not worship, we'll get into that later. But just by way of illustration, the music is not the main thing in worship. So here in Matthew chapter 2, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Here, Jesus Christ is to be worshipped in Matthew chapter 2 by these wise men who are coming to worship him. The first mention of worship in the New Testament is these wise men expressing a desire to worship Jesus Christ. It's worth noting that these wise men are men from the east. These wise men are likely Babylonian, Persian, or Median, or something of that nature from the east. These are not Jewish men that have come in. These are Gentiles. Isn't that very interesting that the very first mention of worship in the New Testament comes from the lips of Gentiles who have traveled a long distance in fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament to worship the king of the Jews. And it says in verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. The second mention of worship in the New Testament comes out of the lips of what appears to be an Edomite. The Bible does not, as far as I can find anyway, specifically verify that Herod was an Edomite. That's historical record as far as I understand it. But here, an Edomite is the second person to mention worship. And Edom is the one that um, came from Esau. God said there of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Yet we find that in the Old Testament, God makes a promise to Edom that Edom will also come and worship before him. So here, Herod, this listen, this is really, really interesting stuff, and I can't get into it all right now, but I want to at least perk your interest in it, like mine is perked, to study deeper. Here, Herod, an Edomite, ruling over part of the nation of Israel in cooperation with the Roman Gentile government ruling over Israel. This Edomite, Herod, professes a desire to come and worship Christ, which would be a fulfillment of prophecy. But he's deceiving. He's lying. He's, he's doing this in a faint. He's trying to, trying to sidestep 
the coming of the Messiah by murdering the Messiah because he wants to be king. So here it's kind of like a picture of the Antichrist unfolding before you. Here come the Gentiles to worship the king of the Jews. The Jews aren't ready for their king. And here's an Edomite king who's ruling over the Jews who they would rather have than Jesus. You say, oh, they would rather have an Edomite than Jesus. That can't be true. Who did they take Jesus to when he was crucified? They took him to Pilate. And Pilate sent him to Herod. And so, by extension, the Jews handed over Christ to the Edomites. They handed over Christ to Esau. The seed of Jacob gave up their Messiah and gave him to this Edomite king, Herod. They gave up their king and said, we'd rather have him. We'd rather have this Edomite, this wicked, filthy, wicked Herod to rule over us. Now, this is a different Herod than that Herod. There's a whole bunch of Herods. Herod is more of a title than it is a physical name. It's more like calling somebody king, only not, because it also had to do with his family. And I'm not an expert on that, not trying to pretend like I am, but and I don't even care to be, but you need to know enough about it to just be able to navigate here. So Herod called the wise men. He said, I want to worship him. Verse 9, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till, they, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, here are three mentions of worship in the New Testament. The first three mentions all packed together in the 11 verses of chapter 2. The first 11 verses of chapter 2. Most of chapter 1 is a genealogy, half of it. So almost immediately in the New Testament, you find this theme of worship becoming central and really taking the center stage of the whole discussion. The motivation of the wise men was to worship the king. The motivation of Herod was said to be to worship the king, but he was coming with a false worship. He was claiming to worship God, but in reality, he was all about himself and he wanted to kill the Messiah. He was a rebel against God. He was um, against the Messiah, and yet he claimed to want to worship Christ Also, that's not a coincidence. God knows what he's doing. The Bible is true. The Bible is written by God. It's God's word. And so here, the first two mentions of worship in the Bible are one, legitimate, and second, illegitimate. Not a coincidence. There is true worship and there is false worship, and you can't always tell it apart until later. The third mention here of worship, they fell down and worshiped him. When they finally got to him, the act of worship that is described here in Matthew chapter 2 is falling down and worshiping him and presenting their treasures, giving him these treasures of great worth. So we see here several things about worship immediately in Matthew chapter 2. Number one, worship seeks the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, worship can be faked and done for ulterior motives. Number three, true worship is a submission to a Lord. They fell down. These wise men, who some call kings, these fell down before the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was but a very young child, about two years of age at this time. And here they fell down before him and worship. Fourthly, worship involves a giving of yourself and 
and of giving of those offerings, of those things that are of great value. Pastor Edge at our church has been preaching on true worship from Leviticus, and it's a powerful study. It's a wonderful study. We've been enjoying it thoroughly. Um, You can look that up and enjoy it from our, um, I think it's been most of the time on the Bible class hour, 9.45 Sunday morning. So in any case, here they are giving of themselves. They're offering to God. It is worth noting here that music has no part in this chapter. The closest thing to music that we're going to find is the voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning when Herod fulfills his wicked designs against the Messiah by murdering all of the babies two years old and under in Bethlehem whenever the wise men do not return to Herod. That's the closest thing to music. Again, music is part of worship, but music is not the main theme of worship. When you say worship, music should not be the first thing that comes to your mind. You hear me today? Music is not the main part of worship. Music is, and pun intended, an instrument of worship. Okay, music is something that we use as a channel of worship, as something to encourage worship. But worship itself is not require is is not dependent upon the music. Music can come, music can go. Worship of God will take place, whether anybody likes it or not. Worship can take place in a jail cell with the raspy voices of men who've been beaten for their faith singing praises to God. But worship can also take place in a church where everyone's lifting their voices to God. And worship can also take place in a prayer closet where someone's on his face before God, weeping and praying for lost souls and worshiping God for the beauty of his holiness while he approaches the throne of grace and intercession. Worship is something far deeper than music. Music can be part of worship, but worship does not have to involve music. Worship is the greater of the two, by far the greater. So therefore, if the worship is missing... Your music is not worship, no matter what you call it. You can put the label of worship on your music, but if worship of God is not present, then you are not worshiping God, no matter what you called your music. Herod called it worship to try and go kill Messiah. And many people today call music worship that is not worshiping God because they are not seeking the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are not submitted to the Messiah. Jesus Christ. They will not bow down before Christ. They will not obey Christ. And they, it is also not worship because they will not offer anything to God other than the lame and the broken and the, and the maimed of the flock. And they do not give the best. They do not give their heart. They do not give all of themselves. They give God a few little things off to the side. They show up on Sunday morning unsubmissive, rebellious to the word of God, in defiance to the King of Israel, Jesus Christ. And they stand there and they shout praises and hallelujah and I love you, Jesus. And they say, we had a great worship service. No, you didn't. You had a great jam session and you got hyped up and you had a big happy happy time, but you did not worship because you were not in submission to the King. You were in rebellion to the King. You did not want a Lord. You do not want a Lord. You will not 
not obey the Bible. You do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. The word of God has no authority in your life, and therefore you do not know the first thing about biblical worship. And that's before we ever get to talking about instruments or what instruments or should a church have drums or what about that backbeat or any of those other issues that people might bring up. Now, I want to tell you today, we started with the meat of the discussion on worship on purpose because it's the meat of the discussion. The backbeat, the drums, the piano, all of these things that we can talk about are sideline. They pale in comparison. They are way out there as almost, almost immaterial. They're not immaterial, but almost immaterial. They do matter, but they don't matter anywhere near as much as the heart of the worshiper. The heart of the worshiper. And if the heart of the worshiper is not seeking the king, submitting to the king, and offering himself to the king, there is no worship going on there. I don't care what you felt, it ain't worship. If you're not seeking the king, submitted to the king, and offering yourself to the king, all that you are, all that you have, If you are holding back from God, you are not worshiping God. If you are in rebellion to God, you are not worshiping God. We could preach the whole rest of this Bible time right here and just forget about everything else and it would be profitable just like it is. But there are some practical matters of music and worship that are worth, that need talked about and some people do need it. But again, I want to reiterate, you come in rebellion and none of it, anything else that I have to say has any point. Nothing else in this whole lesson has any use to you at all if you're coming in rebellion to the king. If you're not seeking the king, and if you're not offering yourself to the king, you don't know the first thing about worship, and you are absolutely disqualified from even having this discussion or having any opinion in it. Your opinion is useless and worthless until you get right with God. And then maybe you can have an opinion about some of these other little things. There are very little in comparison to the main thing. But let's jump into some of these other little things real quick, and then we'll come back to this idea of worship because it is the most important, and we want to keep it the central idea throughout this entire teaching. But in the meantime, let's just touch real quick on tempo, focus, backbeats, adoration, emphasis, skill, or lack of skill, balance in music. Um, As we're discussing music in worship, we're going to look at several of these things real quick. Some people say that music is all moral. They say that music is like air or sunshine or water, and that music just isn't, it's not right and it's not wrong. And if you were to go and play a B-flat on the piano, I'd have to agree that that B-flat is not right or wrong. It's a B-flat in that sense. But in another sense, I'd have to disagree, and I'd say God created music. So therefore, the B-flat is right. Okay, see if you can track this for a second. Playing a B-flat is not wrong, but the B-flat is right because God created it. And God made it good. When God created everything, he created musical law. The Bible teaches us, and we may get to it um, whenever we study this. In fact, let's just go there real quick. Let's just jump ship. I'm jumping all over my notes. We'll just have to see how this works. Let's go to Ezekiel, I think it is, verse 28 or chapter 28. I'm going to try and find that. When God created the world, he created music. And we find this because God created the angels before he even created the world. And the first one of the great angels that Jesus created was Lucifer. 
This Lucifer, you find him named in Isaiah 14, and there's a whole study there where Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High, and he ended up getting cast down. Here in Ezekiel 28, um, God speaking to Lucifer as if he's speaking to the king of Tyrus. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. This is verse 12 of Ezekiel 28. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created." Now, we want to talk about that in in a little bit, Lord willing, but what I want to focus in on right now in this part of the discussion is the creation of music. Here, God created Lucifer with tabrets and pipes in him in the day that he was created. The anointed cherub that covereth, the next verse says, one of the greatest creations of God, a great angelic being created with musical instruments built in to his very created spirit body. And when God created Lucifer, by the way, Lucifer was good. Lucifer was not Satan whenever he was created. He was Lucifer. And he was one of God's great angels. And apparently from the from this little bit of scripture, we can kind of stretch out on a little bit of conjecture and say he was a leader of music because he was one of the great leaders amongst the angels. And he was musical. Whereas you find Gabriel being more messenger oriented, but it's so hard to tell. God tells us so little. Don't get into all that too much, you know. Just let the Bible say what it says, and where the Bible doesn't say it, exercise humility and reverence for God and realize that God didn't tell you because you don't need to know. So don't go too far off in conjecture. But in any case, here, Lucifer, before he was Satan, before he became arrogant and proud and lifted up, he had tabrets and pipes. God created music, and music is good. So people say music is unmoral. I say to you, that is wrong. There's an element of truth in what you're saying that I'll recognize and I'll give you that much, but in a biblical sense, whenever you look at the reality of it, music was created by God and was good. So that means the B flat is good. The A is good. The C is good. The D is good. The All of the different parts of music are good. God created music good. It's not I'm all moral. It is good. God created Adam and Eve good. Satan came along, defiled them, perverted them. They fell and became wicked. And in the same way, music can be defiled, perverted and twisted and become wicked. Music is not amoral. Music is very moral. Music is good. By the way, they say um, music's like air. It's amoral. Air is morally good. God made air and God made it for us as good air. And whenever you take somebody's air away from them, you find out really fast that it is a moral issue because now you're struggling for air. And all of a sudden you recognize that that air is good. Not bad, good. God made it good. You make air bad, like in a house fire where a man can no longer breathe, and air becomes a moral issue. And it becomes essential for life and death. The same thing with sunshine and water and everything else. This is important to grasp. Really, there's nothing amoral. 
Everything was made good, moral, and right by God, and the devil is at work to to defile everything and make it immoral, wicked, bad, and hurtful and harmful. But God made everything good. You know, you take away sunshine from somebody, they'll find out pretty quick too how good sunshine is, but you can let that sunshine become a bad thing in the wrong context. You can even use sunshine badly. For example, letting the light reflect off your nakedness and exposing your body to everyone. And those good light rays that God has created have now been used by you and the devil to defile everybody around you because you think that you have some kind of body that should be shown off and run around in next to nothing. You've now taken something that God made that was good and used it to do something that is wicked. Now, in the same way, how you use music matters. Music is very powerful. God made it. It's good. It was designed by God with a purpose designed by God. And how you use music is very powerful. You can use music to excite lust or to calm the lusts. You can use music to sensualize or to satisfy. Only fake and carnal Christians fail to understand this fact. Hollywood understands this fact. The um, retailers understand music is powerful. It can bypass your reasoning faculties and directly affect your emotions and your body. Everybody knows this. Movie producers know this. Music record producers know this. Shopping malls know this. Police know this. Everybody in the world knows how powerful music is, except phony Christians. And then they're the only ones in the world who say, music is amoral, it doesn't really matter. Ignorant. Don't be that guy. Everybody knows that music is not amoral, and it is very powerful, and it affects people. There are many physical traits of music. We're going to talk about some of those physical traits of music real quick here. I'm by no means an authority on music theory, but having had some music theory and a lot of exposure to music, I do have some stuff to share with you about it real quickly. Some of you may know a lot more than me, but I'll just throw some stuff out there. First of all, one of the most noticeable parts of music is the rhythm. Now, some people say rhythm is bad, but I tell you this, no rhythm is bad. Have you ever listened to somebody with no rhythm? It's awful. You can't follow it. You can't track it. Rhythm is a gift from God. Did you know that your heart works with rhythm? Your heart has a beat, but did you know that if you have dysrhythmia or whatever they call it, your heart's throwing a different beat. The, the, it gets its natural God-given order gets twisted in your heart and your heart is, is beating wrong. Then you, you lose strength. You're weak. You can't do what you're supposed to do. And if you continue in that condition, your heart will seize up and you will die. So rhythm is very important. Rhythm is very powerful. Ask a mechanic about rhythm. When you have a V8 engine and you're trying to go down the road or a motor, you got a V8 motor and you're trying to get down the road and you you hit that gas pedal and the timing chain breaks in your um, gas motor and your engine ceases to work in its proper order with the correct rhythm, the whole thing flies to pieces inside. 
And now you're broken down on the side of the road because your engine got out of rhythm. Rhythm is very important. Rhythm is very powerful. Rhythm is very needed. But rhythm out of balance is a bad thing. If you go down the road in your car and all of a sudden there's a big knocking coming from your motor and it's rhythmic and it's in time with your motor, but it's so loud that you can't hear anything but the knocking, you're going to say, wait a second, I've got a problem in my motor. There's a knock in my motor. This is wrong. And music can get the same way. Whenever everything's boom, 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 and the emphasis is on the rhythm, what you have done is you have turned music around and altered it from its original purpose and harmony and balance, and now you've created out-of-balance music that drives the sensual because the rhythm is what our body responds to. And rock and rollers know this too. There's a beat called a stop antiseptic beat. It's designed to affect the heart heart. If you have music turned up really loud and you hit a stop antiseptic beat, bam, and you just stop and change the rhythm and go, it will literally make your heart do a flip-flop if you're in the audience listening to it. And you're, you'll kind of, ugh, and you'll feel that in your heart. And so rock and rollers and their crowds really like the stop antiseptic beat because they can feel it, man. Well, just because you can feel something doesn't mean it's good. You would feel a Mack truck running you over in the road. That doesn't mean it's good. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it's good, people. Come on. Now, the, so the boom, 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 boom of the beating can, if it's out of balance, it detracts from the purpose of music and the order of music. The tempo of music also affects your heart rate. Whenever people have a crowd and they want to calm the crowd, they pre- play relaxing music. When they want everybody to buy, 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 then they just ramp up the music and they get it all ramped up and get people going and they get that tempo going and they get that beat going and they get everybody all ramped up. So they're going to come in there and buy more stuff from you. Now, the dynamics also has an effect on music. These are all physical parts of music. Tempo is the speed of the music. Rhythm is the beat of the music. Dynamics is the volume of the music. And dynamics is very powerful. And listen, I'm just giving you stuff here so we can build a discussion of music that is God-honoring. And we'll get into it in just a second. But I've heard people, and they're like, oh, that music was so loud it couldn't have honored God. Wait a second. Your music's so quiet. How does it honor God? You know, there's a time for loud and there's a time for quiet. And that's called dynamics. I remember when we got married, uh, my wife, she doesn't like to listen to music very loud at all. She wants it to be background all the time. Almost all the time. She wants it very quiet. Unless she's trying to learn a song, then all of a sudden you can't hear anything but that song while she's focusing on it. But she wanted that song to be really quiet and in the background. I'm a little different, and I've worked in loud environments a lot of my life, and so she thinks I'm hard of hearing. I'm not so sure about it. I can't hear what I don't hear, though. But in any case, she thinks I'm a little bit hard of hearing because of that, and... I like the music to be turned up enough that I can hear all the parts and I can hear the tone of the music behind the music. So the tone of the string after it's plucked and that string is still resonating. I want to be able to hear that resonating and I want to hear the blending of the resonance of the strings. I want to hear every part of the music that I can hear. I've always loved music and I've loved, loved to hear all the parts of it and the blending and the harmonies and isolate the parts with my mind and listen to them and listen to how they're blending. And so for me, 
I want to, I've got to have it turned up a little bit to get there. And what would always happen, I'd put in a piece that starts really quiet and it builds and builds and builds. And we'd get to the part where it had built up to for 10 minutes. And here comes this great work of music and it builds up and it gets there. And she reaches over and turns the dial down because it's loud. And I would say, honey, you just killed the dynamics. You killed the whole song. We've spent 10 minutes getting to this point and you just flattened it. Ruined the whole piece. We had all kinds of fun with that. Dynamics are important. And there's a time for soft and there's a time for loud. Some people are like, it's always got to be loud. You're nuts. Some people think it's always got to be quiet. Listen, you're nuts. Dynamics. It's part of music. There's a time for loud. There's a time for soft. There's a time for medium. There's a time for fast. There's a time for slow. There's a time for a heavier beat, and there's a time for a softer beat. There's a time for everything. But, you know, a lot of Christians will take these physical traits of music, and this is why we're going over this today in music and worship, well-meaning Christians. They don't want ungodly music. They don't want out-of-balance music. But they'll pick their favorite parts of music, and they'll say, this is holy, and everything else is unholy. And that would be like me telling my wife, you listening to music quiet, that's unholy. And my wife coming back to me and say, you ungodly pervert, you listen to loud music. And we end up separated because we don't think we can walk together. Can two walk together except they be agreed. The next thing you know, she's living with her folks and I'm living in an apartment somewhere in Bangladesh or something. Because she's unholy and likes quiet music. And I'm unholy and I like loud music. So that's dynamic skill. Skill is another physical trait of music. Skill matters. Now you have a whole class of people out here. Lord, help me to hurry. I'm running out of time. We've got to move. We have a whole class of people out here that thinks that you should have a bless your heart moment every time somebody sings. And you've got to get somebody up there that can't hold a tune in a bucket. Can't even carry a tune in a bucket. And they're going to get up there and they're going to try their best. And that means that we've really met with God because somebody just absolutely turned a good song into a travesty and a human a crime against humanity. And so because they've taken this song and mutilated it and butchered it and chopped it up, that we're all supposed to say, what a good job you did. You've blessed us all. No, you didn't bless us all. Skill matters. Now, on the other hand, you have a whole group of people that say skill matters and somebody that can't sing shouldn't sing. And they want to shut up everybody that can't sing. And God hates that. But listen, there's balance. The key here is balance. There's balance to everything. There's a time to sing and there's a time not to sing. There's a time to sing loud and there's a time to sing soft. There's a time to sing fast and there's a time to sing slow. There's a time to sing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord and do the very best you can. And everybody say, praise God together and worship God together. And don't look down at your brother if he can't hit the right note. Let's just sing together. Bless the Lord. We had last night, pastor called all the men of the church up to sing together. It is well with my soul. It was wonderful. And I promise you. There was probably not, not 40% of the men that could actually hold the, the notes right all the way through. But all those men singing together, lifting up their voices to God, and, and we, just, it, we just punched it out, and it worked. And there's a time for that, and it was a blessing, and it's good, and it's godly, and it's holy, and it includes all the brethren, and it's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that you need to get up and sing a solo if you can't hold a tune. Does this make sense? 
Everything decently and in order. God gives gifts severally. Let's apply this to preaching. Let's, let's apply it to preaching. Y'all leave the church. You say, oh, we're going to have, we're going to have Joey get up there and sing and we're all going to clap for him and pretend like he did a good job and it sounded absolutely dreadful. And everybody's going to lie through their teeth and tell him he did a good job. Why? And then you get some guy, let's say his brother Johnny says, I'm called to preach. And he gets up there and drones in a monotone and takes 30 minutes to read five verses stumbling over every word. He can't get any out. He's constantly going back and repeating. Let's say Ezekiel 28, 23, for I will send into her pestilence. And he says, for I will send, and this is how it goes, for an hour. And you're sitting there, and you're supposed to say, bless God, amen, I got fed today. And he didn't even give you anything. He read a couple disjointed verses that did not match, and they didn't come together, and there was no meat or feeding or power or anointing from the Word of God. Yes, God can use some pretty unlikely people. There's balance. There's balance. But there is balance. Amen? When we've got two camps of people everywhere, we just split and divide and split and divide. We've got the slow music people and the fast music people. We've got the heavy rhythm people and we've got the soft rhythm people. And we've got all these different people. We've got the skillful people and the stinking singing people. And they're going to have their own stinking singing church. And the skillful people are going to have their skillful singing church. And we're all split up over all these physical traits of music. And there's balance to this thing, okay? There's balance. The physical traits of music do matter, just like they do when you're preaching. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, how shall the people prepare themselves for battle? Do you hear me? Get some guy up there and he's preaching and he preaches wrong. Are you going to let him keep preaching? And he gets up there and he says, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they bare Cain and he had Noah and the flood came and then the snake, he tempted old Noah's son and Noah's son looked at his father. So God cursed the world with thorns. Are you going to let him keep preaching? But no, he gets up there and he can't sing any note. He's not hitting one note and we let him keep singing. Why? I don't understand why there's such this disconnect. We get our emotions involved and we can't just tell somebody, listen, I love you in the Lord. This is not your gift. Let's look for a place God has gifted you because I know that God has given you gifts. And let's find the gifts that God has given you so that you can be a blessing to the church instead of just all of us pretending like it's great and lying through our teeth until we create some kind of monster. Because that's usually what ends up happening. When you take somebody and lie to them and flatter them, you work ruin. The tongue of the flatterer worketh ruin. I'm not talking about going up and grabbing somebody and say, you stink, man. Sit down and shut up. No, let brotherly love continue. Esteem others better than yourself. Have some grace for people that miss notes. I miss a lot of notes, by the way. Have some grace for people that miss notes. Everybody makes mistakes, but at the same time, let's balance this thing. The Bible has the word mascal in the Psalms, and it means skillfully. Skillfully. Skill matters. The elements of music matter. The beat 
matters. You get the emphasis on the backbeat of the music where it's this heavy backbeat driving rhythm. You have twisted music. You are now using it opposite of what it is intended for. If you take air and pump it into an open wound on high pressure, you will develop a worse infection and oxidization and damage the tissue. And the very thing God intended for life has now become death. If you take water that we must have to survive and instead of drinking it, you breathe it, that which God intended for life will become death. And God's, the way God ordered music and made music, it should have a flow, it should have a rhythm, it should have dynamics, it should have some skill, it should be done in a way that glorifies God, brings attention to God, and draws our hearts to worship. Now, jazz music drives sensual responses. You see, you go ask um, one of those famous jazz singers, go ask him, is it, what do you think, is this, is your music appropriate for being sung? in a church service and he'd say, I don't even want to go to a church service. What are you talking about? He'd say, would you come sing your jazz music during our church service? Back when jazz was really popular, they wouldn't have even thought about it because there was actually a difference between the world and the church and they wouldn't have wanted to be in the church. Jazz music drives sensual responses. Rock and roll drives sensual responses. Country western drives sensual responses. And contemporary Christian music and its physical elements is exactly the same as all of those that I mentioned, and it drives sensual responses. All you've done is relabel all of this world's twisted backwards music and repackage it with the name of Jesus on it, and it is not in submission to God's order. It's not in submission to God's plan, and it is ungodly music. Now, we got to move on from here. This stuff matters. It matters. The backbeat matters. The dynamics matter. The skill matters. And by the way, you want to fuss about a backbeat, but you don't want to fuss about skill. You're a hypocrite. They're the same thing, same group, same physical traits of music. You're not going to let somebody play a backbeat in your church, but you're going to let somebody get up there and croon like a mama cow trying to find her calf. I'm sorry if that offends some people, but it is, it's truth. The skill is part of it. If you can't sing, but you love to sing, sing in your shower. Honestly, you know, you'll never hear me sing like you'll hear me sing in an empty building by myself. And then I'll let her rip. Nobody there to really listen, just me and the Lord, and I sing and make a joyful noise in the Lord. I also sing out in congregational singing, and I miss some notes. I bomb some notes sometimes. But you know what? Most of my singing happens in places where everyone else is not subjected to it. And that's by design, because God did not give me a voice for leading the worship of God, which when you sing a solo, that's what you're doing, and that's where we're going to bring this thing back around to, music and worship. What's its purpose? What's its design? How do you use music? Why do you use music? Is music actually um, really a part of worship? Let's go to the book of Revelation and run some verses. We're going to have to move, move, move. Revelation chapter 1, the, um, here is worship 
expressed, though the word worship is not here. Now here the Apostle John in chapter 1 of Revelation in verse 11 sees the is in the Spirit on the Lord's day in verse 10, and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things that thou hast seen. So here's an act of worship. We're going to run through Revelation real fast, pick up a few verses that all deal with worship, and we're going to look at where we we will find music. We're going to get there, but in the meantime, there's many other things that transcend and surpass and go beyond the musical aspect here. There's no mention of music in this first chapter of Revelation, but we find the Apostle John falling as a dead man at the feet of Jesus and totally overcome with the glory and the majesty of Christ. This great act of worship was followed by Jesus Christ saying, Fear not, I am the first and last, and telling him to write... The, those things which thou hast seen. So I want you to know that worship involves the written word of God. The product of the worship of the Apostle John for Christ was this book of Revelation. And that is significant. That worship involves the word of God. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is where true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. Both must be there, spirit and truth. And here the word of God is found as the central part of the worship of the Apostle John. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to find another scene involving worship. And here in verse 10, it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the Lord, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here is another instance of worship that involves no music, but rather a prostrating of themselves before God, a casting of their golden crowns reminiscent of what the Gentile wise men did when they found the baby Jesus. They fell on their faces and they gave their gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So here you have the prostrating again and the giving of the gifts again and the giving of themselves again and the total abandonment of self for the glory of God. And this is worship in its very essence. Worship is adoration. Worship is obsession. Worship is a total captivated heart that is completely bound up in its subject of adoration. And here we find that though no music is specifically mentioned in this passage, yet we find one of the greatest accounts and acts of worship in the history of the entire world. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. 
Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Here is a call to worship by an angel, a call to rejoicing in the magnificent judgments of God. So we find here that worship is again mentioned with no reference to music, but rather a reference to the judgment of almighty God against sin. And so we find that worship involves purity and judgment and that true worship is a worship of purity and an acknowledgement of the righteous judgments of almighty God. This is why it is impossible to worship God in sin and with iniquity in your heart. God said, if I regard iniquity in my heart through the day, through David, the psalmist, he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Your worship falls on deaf ears when you come with an unclean heart and unclean hands to worship God. So in Revelation 13, we're going to find worship again in the word of God. And this worship is the worship of the Antichrist in verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war uh, with him? And then in verse 8, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Here the devil recognizes that true worship is... Is submission. Back in Isaiah 14, Satan, Lucifer, exalted himself. And the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Worship is what Satan desires. Worship is what Satan wants. And Satan understands worship more than most people alive today. Satan understands that worship involves submission. Satan understands that worship involves prostration. Satan understands that worship involves adoration. Satan understands that worship involves a total abandonment of self for the cause of the one who is being worshipped. And therefore he will make it so that if you do not receive the mark of the beast, you will not be able to buy or sell so that every aspect of your life is under the direct influence and control and dominion of the Antichrist and the dragon. Satan understands worship. Why don't we? Let's move on and let's find music. Finally, in Revelation, in verse 14, we find here... (coughs) 
Here is the Lamb, stood on Mount Sinai, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers, harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. This is a specific group. We're not going in to the eschatological significance of this, the end time study of it right now. But what I want you to see is that these were pure. These were holy. These were singing the song of the Lamb. These were the redeemed out of the earth. And these were worshiping God with music. We find that there's another sign in heaven. It goes on and there are actually multiple places it deals after that with music in heaven. And it brings it up many times. Music is certainly an accompaniment to worship. But worship can happen without music. And music does not mean worship. Just because it's music. We have found in the word of God that Satan uses music. And I didn't actually bring up that text. Go to Daniel chapter 3. And let's look at the significance here. And then we'll go back to the first praise and worship service in the Bible here. In just a couple minutes, Lord willing. We're trying to hurry today. Daniel chapter 3. And verse 5. Here is a great image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up a false idol to be worshipped. And he says through his herald that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, sultry, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, sultry, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. We find that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not fall down. They stood there with the music banging and clanging around their heads and Nebuchadnezzar asked them in verse 14, Do not ye serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? It was not enough for them to be present and listen or hear the music. Nebuchadnezzar wanted their obedience. He wanted them to fall down before the image and to worship that image and they would not do that they were cast in the midst of the fiery furnace in this case God protected them we find in Revelation that one of the greatest acts of worship is what the three Hebrew children did right there giving their lives to the Lord in total um, subjection to the demands of their Lord and even though it would cost them their lives You'll see that there in Revelation 14, talking about the word of their testimony, love not their lives even unto the death. A total abandonment of myself to the needs and desires and demands of the one that I am worshiping is a necessary part of worship. Exodus 32, we find here when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives of your sons and of your daughters and bring them unto me and all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf and they said these be thy gods O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt 
And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. They're using the names of God. They're using the service of God. They're using the feasts of God. They're using the offerings of God. They're using the ways of God. They're using biblical terminology. And yet, if instead of God, they're worshiping a golden calf who have they have made in their own understanding and after their own imagination, but they're doing this all in the name of God using biblical terms. We find that whenever God sends down Moses to the camp, Joshua hears the noise. He says, it's war. Moses says, no. He's, and he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither it is the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. Here Moses says, that he, it says that Moses saw the people that they were naked for Moses had, for Aaron had made them naked naked under their shame among their enemies. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp. He called the Levites. They got their swords and started killing people. God liked Moses' worship service better than Aaron's. And here in the Bible, in Exodus 32, you have the first praise and worship service recorded in the Word of God. Whenever Satan is worshipped as Satan, people fall down before Satan. People cast their children into the fire before Satan. People die on an altar for Satan when they worship Satan. When people worship Jesus Christ in the Bible, they fall on their face before Christ. They give him their all. They give him their honor. They give him their lives. And when people worship Satan in the name of Jesus Christ in the Bible, they dance around shouting and singing praises. Isn't that interesting? When Muslims get ready to worship, they have what they call a prayer call that comes out from their minarets, and you can hear it echo throughout the city, and in the really strong Muslim centers of the world, anyone that does not fall down and worship will be punished, sometimes with their life. But in American churches across this land, we come in our sin, and we come in our filth, and we come in our irreverence, and we come in our wickedness, and we take our twisted music and we turn it up loud and we dance around all over the place with our lights and our fogs and we call it worship and God calls it idolatry. It's really a phenomenon. Only false worship of Jesus Christ, only false worship of the true God in the name of the true God has ever elicited such an event. Now there are some orgies and garbage that goes on and bill worship and all that, but did you know that that all usually was revolved around offerings first and at least they brought the offerings and they had to fulfill the requirements of their so-called gods before they could have their orgies and their feasts but not so in the american system of worship that has pervaded the churches of this land instead we come in our sin and our wickedness and our filth we have no appreciation for the word of god and no understanding of his righteous demands and yet we say we're worshiping god when in reality we're worshiping the golden calf of our own imagination in this country. As we wrap it up again, music is very important in worship, but the heart of worship is a heart of total surrender and subjection to the will and to the word of God. True worship is in very essence adoration. Worship involves everything that we have, not just music. True worship involves everything. Do you hear me? Everything we have, not just music. True worship involves every dollar I own, every minute that I, that I have in my possession. True worship involves where I live. True worship in, involves where I go. True worship involves what I spend my time on. 
And if you want to take music out and make it its own little thing where you call music worship, but yet your life is in total rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ, you have created a false worship and you are using a word in a uh, way that it is not intended to be used. It is deceit. That is not worship. True worshipers must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. On the flip side of the contemporary crowd, if you get your philosophy of music so paramount in your mind that you're willing to break fellowship with godly people, I'm not talking about getting out of bill worship, okay? But you're going to start sowing seeds of discord and attacking other people and running down other people that God is using because the physical traits of their music are not exactly right, then your doctrine has flip-flopped and your focus is on the physical traits of music instead of the spiritual. And in that case, you might find yourself at the, at the Bema seat to be in more trouble with God over your upside-down, out-of-balance, backbeat, rock-and-roll doctrine than that other Christian's out-of-balance, backbeat, rock-and-roll music. Because worship is bigger than music. Again, it matters. It matters. They shouldn't have that backbeat in their music. But God's looking deeper than the physical traits of the music, just like he does whenever you get up and make a mistake. Hey, let's be honest. Let's be honest. You didn't sing that note right. Is that in balance? Is that proper? You stuttered. You accidentally missed your note, and you had a hiccup, and now you syncopated the song. Did you sin? Come on, let's get real. Let's get real about this thing. The physical traits of the music, from the skill and the accuracy of the notes to the rhythm and the backbeat and the dynamics, it all matters. It's all, it's all made by God, designed by God, and it should follow God's design, but it's not the main thing. Do you hear me today? And when you make it the main thing, you are out of balance and you are making a mountain sometimes out of a molehill. Now, again, I'm not talking about this Baalistic worship. What's, what's really the problem anyway? Is it the lights? Is, is, this, is it sin to have blue lights in your church? Is it really a sin to turn the lights down? I don't like it. I'm not for it. But is it a sin? Is it a sin to paint your ceiling black? Is it? Is that the sin? Is it a sin to have a backbeat in the music? What is the real sin? The real sin is the rebellious hearts toward God that refuse to obey the Bible. And we're never going to get anywhere as long as we're still fussing about the physical traits of the music instead of dealing with the spiritual problem behind the physical abnormalities. We've got to get back to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is the heart. The root of the issue is that fornicators and sodomites and perjured persons and covetous who openly embrace their sinful and sensual lifestyles and have pleasure in ungodliness and in them that do ungodliness even though they know that the wrath of God is against them that do such. That these people gather in our churches in the name of Jesus Christ with no repentance and no desire to repent and they exalt man and man's wisdom and they twist the Bible and rest the scriptures and do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. The issue is not the backbeat. The backbeat is a byproduct of the issue. 
Do you hear me today? Don't let the byproduct become your main thing. Music is a tool. It's an, it's an instrument, again, pun intended, to worship God with. It should be done balanced. It should be done right. But before you can ever get there, you better get your heart right with God. And you better come before God with that pure heart. As we're closing, we've ran out of time. Final comments here, I promise. As we're closing here, I want to talk about one other way that music gets out of balance. We can talk about the backbeat till we're blue in the face. Worship is adoration. When a performer gets up and performs and the people are doting over that performer or his skill, the worship is no longer worship of God. Think about this for a second. Do you know that you can have a dress down to the floor and beautiful long hair, modest in your comportment, have a godly authorized version Bible, a good pastor in a good church, a good family, and be doing your best to serve the Lord and get up and sing a song. And deep down in your heart, there's a secret desire for attention and wanting to be seen of men and wanting the applause of men. And that secret desire defiles and distorts and perverts your worship far more than a backbeat because that's idolatry in the heart. Did you know that you can get up and be beautiful and holy for God in all your outward appearances? And the audience can be looking. This happens. This is um, prolific, even amongst good Bible-believing, independent, fundamental assemblies throughout the nation of America. You can have a godly couple get up or a godly trio or a godly quartet get up and here everything looks godly about them and they start singing and the audience starts to adore them. This is especially, especially happens with young women singing. Young women singing is a powerful, powerful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But this is a danger that can be entered into with it, that these young women singing can begin to be adored by their audience. And the moment that they're being adored by their audience and they connect with their audience and they begin to receive that adoration and they begin to look back with their wide open eyes at that audience with no chaste demeanor about them anymore and they've opened up their hearts and their souls to that audience as they pour out their music and... What's really happening there is a soul-to-soul connection between the ladies and the audience that is tantamount to adultery. And so now what you've done is you've brought lust into your service. Now, you won't call it lust because they're dressed right, and they've got long hair, and they've got King James Bibles, but it's just as much lust as if they were wearing miniskirts because the hearts are now adoring the young people instead of adoring the Savior, and worship is adoration, and adoration is worship. And when these people that are singing begin to be adored, and especially when they receive that adoration, what you now have is a satanic element in your worship service. Singing the old hymns by Isaac Watts. Do you hear me today? Charles Wesley, wonderful old hymns. The heart of the issue is not the physical traits of the music, though they do matter. Just like it does matter for that young lady to wear a godly dress that covers her body and not be standing up there in a miniskirt. It matters. But the heart of the issue matters more. Let's get back to the root of the issue. Father, please take this meager, feeble effort, Lord, and use it. And reprove us in our hearts for our false worship. And help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit 
and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.